This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. everyone, this is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spiritualist Podcast on the Be Here Now Network. And today I am very excited to talk with Rachel Harris, PhD. Um, hi Rachel, thank you so much for being on <laughs> hi, the show. Chris. Um, before we get into the conversation, I just want to let the audience know hmm. a little bit about you, share your bio, um, which states that Rachel Harris is the author of Listening to Ayahuasca, She received a National Institutes of Health New Investigators Award, has published more than 40 scientific studies in peer-reviewed journals, and has worked as a psychological consultant to Fortune 500 companies and the United Nations. She lives on an island off the coast of Maine, (coughs) and you can visit her online at www.listeningtoayahuasca.com. And... Thank you. Uh, right before we started this, um, Rachel showed me a little bit outside of her window, and uh, how gorgeous, how gorgeous. I'm actually from Maine, so that's... Oh, really? I am, yeah. I was born in Damascata, and I actually right. was just doing a workshop up um, at Acadia, so it was really nice to be back. It's such a beautiful state. I still have family there, so... Yeah, um, right. And what's the name of the island that you're on? Uh- I'm on Ilaho. Ilaho. So I'm south of uh, Bar Harbor oh, and north beautiful. of Damascata. Yeah. Okay. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful area. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I figured let's start with the very basic because, okay. you know, the the audience for one, for the web series I do is probably going to have little to no knowledge of of this medicine, whereas the audience for the other a lot of them will probably have had experience. Okay. So if you don't mind, I'm sure you've talked about it a million times, but if we can talk about what ayahuasca actually is. Ayahuasca is a, a tea concoction. Mm-hmm. It's made from two plants. It's used by indigenous people in the Amazon uh, River Basin in Peru, Colombia, Ecuador, Brazil. And it's used for healing. And in the indigenous tribes, it's also used to inform uh, tribal members where to hunt. It tells them where the animals are. So it opens up sort of telepathic portals. It's an, it provides an access to information that we don't usually have. It's also used to find out if your partner is cheating on you. So it's used in 
for witchcraft and jealousy, kind of that whole darker side uh-huh. of, um, yes, ah. See, I, not, I <laughs> so, haven't heard of that side. Okay. No, that's in the anthropological literature, not in the psychological. Gotcha. And, uh, or to try, like a magic potion to try and get people to fall in love with you. Mm-hmm. So um, it's used in magic, more magical ways, but also for healing. And, and just in a very concrete way, it removes parasites. So that's really important if you're living in the jungle. Westerners who travel to retreat centers in South America or who go to ceremonies other places are seekers. They're using it for psycho-spiritual development. Correct. Yeah. So it's a very different usage. Okay, yes, yeah, see, I, right off the yeah. bat, I had no idea there were the two different avenues. Um, yeah. Because, you know, my interest in it, and uh, when I first started learning about it, I think was through Gabor Mate's um, work, and as you know, he's a big proponent of it, um, right. especially in regards to healing. I don't think he's the one who said it, but I've heard it likened to one session is the equivalent of like 10 years of therapy. I don't know how accurate <laughs> that is, but I've heard it can really heal, you know, I mean, sincerely heal, and I, I have a friend who... I was very worried about, um, suicidally worried about, and he started doing a couple of ceremonies a year, and now it's like there's just this light around him all the time. Oh, I'm um, so happy to hear that. Yeah, it, it, it healed him in such a tremendous way. Like, So that's when I, you know, I know that there is still a lot of stigma around ayahuasca for certain people, especially in a lot of the communities that... I'm involved with, like I mentioned, I'm in, I'm in recovery myself from drugs and alcohol, but as you know, Gabor explained, and I'm sure you can explain as well, this does not work and it does not affect our brain the same way that say taking cocaine or alcohol does. No, absolutely not. Um, it does not impact the reward centers, so it is not addictive. And you know, there are also, uh, Brazilian churches who are, um, a mixture of Christianity and ayahuasca ritual and even mediumship. And so these are churches that meet every couple of weeks and all throughout Brazil. And so people are drinking it on a regular basis every two weeks, once a month, and it is not addictive at all. Yeah. And so it's referred to as a medicine, um, which I really appreciate that. Can you talk about why it's referred to as a medicine? Well, because culturally, it actually is used as a medicine. I mean, yes. it's, it's used, um, you know, I have friends who have trained very well and so practiced as shaman in indigenous villages. Sure. And it is like those medical teams that arrive in a remote area and yeah. provide medical care. Right. So people come with all con- a whole range of medical problems sure. and they are treated with ayahuasca or with different uh, plant concoctions, well-trained shamans use a variety of plant medicines. Mm. And there's also there are also indigenous differences. Sometimes the client, the patient, drinks the ayahuasca, and sometimes only the shaman drinks it. So this is a plant medicine that's used differently in different cultures. In the West, which was my focus, um, because as a psychologist, I was interested in the psychological healing. Yeah. It's used mostly for the kind of psychological and spiritual healing right. that Gabor references. Right. <clears throat> and so a big area of interest um, 
that I have, and I've, you know, watched documentaries and read up on it, um, is, you know, we're having these studies now that are showing that it truly does help with depression, addictions, PTSD, anxiety. Can you talk about that? Um, and, and yes, I can, yeah. I, I can talk about it in ways that are rational and in ways that are irrational. So I, let me let's have a little both. of both. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do a little of both. Great. So uh, the rational thing is that, uh, that ayahuasca affects the serotonin system in a similar way to uh, the traditional SSRIs, you know, the, the standard medicine that's prescribed in the West. And so people often are, are held in a, in a sense of symptom relief when they're taking ayahuasca regularly. And this happens most frequently in the churches where there's regular access. But people, if they have the resources, can find ceremonies and they can um, they find that the serotonin levels are raised for a good two weeks after the ceremony. And then they begin to fall off and the person needs another ceremony. Um, and so, you know, the question is, well, then is that an addiction? Well, not any more than an SSRI needs to be taken on a daily basis right. and has ongoing side effects. The side effects of ayahuasca have more to do with improved diet, better mood. There aren't the kinds of side effects that people feel with the, the standard antidepressants. The thing that's inexplicable to me is some people, after one ceremony, feel that the depression is lifted and never returns. Mm. So there is no biochemical explanation for that. They are not attending other ceremonies. They feel like they came out of the fog and never go back. And that's what I, I mean, I had to call this a miracle cure because we have no explanation for it. Right. And that's the part that's just kind of beyond us. And we have to say there's a, there's a healing that happens that we don't really completely understand. Right. Now, as I mentioned, I know a lot of people that have partaken in ceremony and some of them, just like you said, one time is all they needed and they were good to go. Their life significantly was changed it for changes the it changes their life how they experience right. themselves right. how they are with other people right it's it the reports are amazing right but then there's the other side of it where as you mentioned some people need multiple or maybe not need but partake in multiple ceremonies um and so that's where you were saying like an ssri um you know, someone in the addiction community that has a strong stigma already against it could say, oh, well, first of all, you're taking some <laughs> substance outside of you and you need to take it multiple times. So, um, you know, what's the difference? And and obviously you've already explained how it affects the body. It does not affect the uh, pleasure center. Um, right. The but, reward center. And, and the addiction center, community, the addiction community is gradually getting better at dealing with dual diagnosis. Yes. And um, you, you, we can probably predict that many, many people with addiction issues have also other issues, psychiatric issues as well. I mean, it shouldn't be a big surprise to people. Right. So as we, as the addiction community becomes more sophisticated about that. I think their acceptance of medications, even the traditional SSRIs, antidepressants, um, they'll, they'll begin to be more accepting of some medicine needs to be taken on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. As if, if someone had, had an addiction and they were diabetic, they right. would, of course, 
take their appropriate medicine. And the same is going to be true if there's uh, any any of the many um, diagnoses for depression, any of the varieties of depression. Right. Well, so yeah. can, can you talk to me about some of the research that does that's been done um, for these therapeutic uh, benefits? Well, the, the one I quoted earlier was where they could see an increase in serotonin levels. Yeah. And so they were able to, they had two measures, one of the serotonin levels, a, a biological marker, mm-hmm. and the other were psychological self-reports from people. And that that lift of the depression would last for about two weeks and then begin a, a decline. And so it's, it's uh, interesting that the churches um, sort of scheduled their ceremonies every two weeks because it fits with the pretty recent research of just a few years ago that we find, well, this makes perfect sense. The, the other thing is ayahuasca acts on the brain in the way that all the psychedelics do. Right. And and that it affects um, activity in the brain. And this is where, you know, if you want to look anything up, look up Google Robin Carhart Harris. He has the most interesting uh, brain research. He's a a neurologist in, uh, I forget the name of the college in in England. And his research is, um, he's been studying specifically LSD and psilocybin, and looking right. at the default at the default mode network, and so that's that sort of constant machine that's that's talking to us all the time in our heads. Right. And it's it, that the act the act when that the default mode network, which is not an anatomical site in the brain, it's a network. It's mm-hmm. a neurological network throughout the brain. When it's overactive. That's indicative of some psychiatric symptomatology, depression, anxiety, that kind of arena. And so all the psychedelics quiet the default mode network. And that opens the door. We literally become more quiet inside. And that opens the door to having an experience of oneness, a mystical experience, what it, the Hopkins research team is calling a complete mystical experience. It's a chance to get outside ourselves. Um, and I think when people talk about one ceremony was worth 10 years of therapy, I mean, I spent my life doing therapy. So, you know, I'm not really thrilled with that phrase. <laughs> and yet I understand it, 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 these medicines, all the psychedelics open up this opportunity for a real breakthrough, for a chance to see what in my book I talk about is our the architecture of our brain to really see how we are constructed yeah. and from an objective point of view and and because there's increased neuroflexibility and neurogenesis we're making new connections and actually growing new neurons um, as a result of psychedelic medicines that we can really be restructuring our brains to a certain extent we don't know even how far we can restructure. But it's that chance to have more objectivity and say, I don't want to think like that. Right. And, and amazing things happen when, when we have that, that outside perspective and make conscious decisions about how we, want to, how we want our egos to work, in a way. You know, I, I, let me just tell you a personal story because yeah, it's very... 
and I, and it's not a good one. Yeah. But um, I just I just literally came back from a funeral where a 26 year old, a young man, killed himself. Yeah. You know, it was absolutely a suicide with a gun. So there was no question about it. Yeah. He had been in ceremonies, yeah. but he was not getting regular treatment for a major depressive episode. They were kind of ceremonies a couple of times a year. It was not enough to carry him and heal him. So those ceremonies were not worth 10 years of care. Sure. Um, And so, you know, it's not a cure-all for everybody. We don't know who will respond with a miracle cure or not. But I came back just a few days ago, actually, and you might hear I have a cold in my voice because I... I came back and I collapsed with a common cold. Yeah, it was, that's same an emotional, here, yeah. yeah, it was such an emotional experience. And this is a very small island, so everybody knew where I was and why I was there. And one, one, of, the, one of my friends here came up and talked to me about his early 20s experience. I think he was in the military, and he's now 60-something, so it's a long time ago. And his experience of being suicidal and he was able to talk to me about it and at one point he said he made the conscious decision and you can get a sense of the objectivity about this decision this is a major therapeutic event that happened spontaneously he was not in therapy he made the decision enough of this i'm either going to kill myself today or i'm going to stop thinking about it and he said he made the decision to stop thinking about it. So, of course, the thoughts would come up because his brain was programmed to keep thinking. But he didn't take the thoughts seriously because he'd made a decision. So he could move. He, he didn't get stuck in the rut of those thoughts. He made a decision that took care of them, sort of. All right, the thought is coming up. I'd like to end my life, but I'm not going to get stuck there because I'm, I know already I'm not going to do it. I'm going to move my thoughts on to other things. That's that. That's a therapeutic intervention that he spontaneously did from himself. Mm-hmm. That um, you know, it it happens in the um, recovery communities, whether it's eating disorders or a, other addictions, is that people decide I'm never going to eat sugar again, for instance. And so every time a cookie comes up in their world, which happens, God knows, all the time, right. some kind of baked good. They don't have to make the decision new each time. I've made that decision, no sugar. Or, or the, I'm, I'm sure you have your own version of this. I've yeah. made that decision. I don't have to make it every single day. Yeah, yeah. And so that's a decision that's a major therapeutic breakthrough that comes from sort of outside, being inside the, the, the structure of this ego. Right. You know, it's. Uh, I'm sorry to hear about the uh, recent experience. It, it brings up for me. I was just um, in December at a retreat with Ram Das, and I met a, a really lovely couple, and they talked uh, very similar uh, to what you just shared. A twenty-something-year-old who, yes. very depressed, was at his wits' end, and decided if uh, this medicine doesn't do it for me, I will end my life. And I think he tried it two or three times, um, and he did end up taking his life. And I know that's not something you hear that's all that common, or at least I have not heard is very common. But part of what I appreciate about your book is you talk about reintegrating, um, you know, after these ceremonies and 
and you know how to use that experience uh, in the most beneficial way. So I, I guess I have a two-part question for you, okay. which the first is if you can actually talk about, and I know we've covered it a little bit, but the experience of actually drinking ayahuasca, like what that might look like. I'm sure it's a bit different for different people. And then how do, you know, said people reintegrate back into the world with that experience in a way that makes it most beneficial for them? Okay, these are huge questions. I know. I, <laughs> Do you I, have a day or two? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Take well, like I said, we've got we've got time. Right. So okay, all right. Well, you know, there's there's almost nothing predictable about people's personal experiences, and you can find them on YouTube and on the internet, and they are widely. It really covers the waterfront. Um, but I could, I, because I'm a psychologist and I'm interested in the, the most therapeutic experiences, let me focus in on trauma. Great. And some people relive a traumatic experience as if they're in the experience itself. So it's happening again. So in a way, they're re-traumatized. In a way. Uh, but it gives them uh, the oppor- a second chance almost to relive it and maybe make a different decision, there's an opportunity to kind of intervene, maybe. Some people just suffer through the experience again, um, and, and then that needs a lot of integration. Some people can intervene in the experience as it's happen, happening and change the story, which is a therapeutic opportunity. Right. And then some people uh, relive the experience, but with a little distance, so they're reliving it, but it's as if they're watching it on a screen. Mm. And so that gives them, uh, even if this happened to them when they were a child, they see themselves as a child, but they are watching as an adult. Right. So they have all their adult thoughts and capacities and resources, and that opens up a lot of possibility for therapeutic resolution. Sure. So, so these are really different ways that people experience and, but everybody would say, I relived a trauma. It would all sort of be under that category. Right. Um, you know, everybody talks about the purging and, you know, because it's the big joke with the vomit buckets and all that. And that's different for different people. And, you know, the range of experience is so broad or why some people experience something and others don't. I, um, I give an example in the book of a woman who was an experienced uh, participant. And it was after uh, the next morning after ceremony, I was talking with her and she said nothing happened. She was bored. Absolutely nothing happened. She took a second amount, a second cup of, you know, doubled the dose. Still nothing happened. Hmm. You know, she sat through the sharing circle and left and driving home. (laughs) She could not stop crying. She had to pull the car off the road. She, in her own head, sitting in some parking lot of a supermarket somewhere, had this whole conversation with a sibling who she was having a lot of trouble with, um, fighting with. And she went through this whole conversation in her head, cried some more, you know, dried her tears and then drove the rest of the way home and called her sibling and they made up. So this huge therapeutic thing happened, but... At the ceremony, she thought nothing was happening. She had no effects whatsoever. Right. 
So I don't, you know, all I can tell you is I'm, I'm solidly miserable for six hours during a ceremony. It's so uncomfortable for me that it's kind of a running joke with the group that I sit with. Right. Everybody knows I'm going to be miserable. But the benefits afterward are, are wonderful. And uh, I don't, you know, at one point I said it's, you know, the image of the Tin Man and the Wizard of Oz when he gets all his joints oiled. Right. I mean, I, I mean, my first thought was, oh, I have found the fountain of youth. You know, I feel younger. And and the truth is, our brains are younger as new connections are made and that sort of thing. So the time afterward is this time of great neural flexibility an opportunity to reprogram how we think and feel. But it requires also some uh, working with that opportunity. Right. And, and people do that to a lesser or greater extent. Um, you know, of course, I'm prejudiced. I think everybody should run right into their therapist's office <laughs> in a day or two after a ceremony. Sure. But you have to be a therapist who understands these realms. I mean, I think that really helps. Um, but people, um, do integration. They talk about it in very different ways. And I'm really most interested in maximizing the therapeutic potential that happens afterwards. And I think that's a process that has to go on for weeks at a time. And there's, it's interesting. There's one quote from, um, oh, I'm I'm not going to be able to, oh, I won't remember his name right away, but he says, it's not integrated. The experience is not integrated until it's expressed in some way. So that means artistically, poetically shared. Um, and I think that's true there, whatever the inner experience was, it has to be expressed into the outer world and reflected on. And I think it's best reflected on with someone who knows you well and is listening as a therapist. So there are many opportunities that are missed. So I can give you an example. Yeah. A woman came to me, and she wanted to talk about the research I was doing. And, and she wanted to share her, what she felt was a wonderful experience of the feminine divine, the archetype, right? She was uh, in her late 20s, experiencing herself coming into her full womanhood. And felt this connection with the Divine Mother, with Ayahuasca as the Divine Figure. She was really thrilled with it. And um, we talked. And, and at a certain point, I sort of lost a little patience with how ecstatic she was about this connection with the Divine. And I, you know, this was not a therapy contract, but I, I couldn't control myself. And I asked her, and so how is your relationship with your mother? And she burst into tears. You know, it was one of those, tell me more about that. And, and she just, uh, you know, she, it was a disaster. So she was um, doing a spiritual bypass. She was going to an archetype female and not dealing with her mother, her relationship with her own mother. Right. And as a matter of fact, she was on her way home for Thanksgiving. So, you know, that was going to be another Thanksgiving disaster that they make movies out of, right? Right, Or it's going to be an opportunity to really see what needed to be healed between her and her mother. Yeah. So that's the difference a therapist makes. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, as you're talking, some of the research I did online, and 
I think it was actually a CNN article for whatever that's worth. Um, talking about the dangers of ayahuasca. There, they used an example from years ago, and I read this last year, so I apologize. I'm not quoting it verbatim. But someone somewhere South America or Peru um, ended up dying. They had a, right. a reaction. And then the whole thing was covered up, and um, the family finally found out, you know, what had happened. Um, right. And again, I'm guessing that's rare, but is there a danger to ayahuasca? Well, the biggest danger is um, is is not death. There there have been deaths reported from ceremonies, but they are not directly related to the medicine itself. There were deaths from tobacco um, uh, ingest, you know, from tobacco poisoning. Right. <laughs> can be used in the ceremony, but not always. So nothing, no deaths have been reported specifically from ayahuasca itself. But people do die. Maybe they choke on their vomit if they're not watched. I mean, there are other risks, either in South America or in, when it's used illegally in, in North America. Yeah. Um, but the biggest risk is psychiatric. Mm-hmm. So if somebody has a history of bipolar or... Uh, psychotic episodes, I don't think it's worth the risk Mm. Um, because it can trigger a psychotic break. Sure, sure. And um, so I'd be very careful about that. Also, if someone were considering traveling to South America, they have to be very careful who they go to. They have to get a really good reference. And because some of the shaman are um, not all that ethical by Western standards. And so they can take advantage of young women um, and, uh, you know, unfortunate things, women have been, have reported being raped and that sort of thing. So you have to be extremely careful. Yeah. Do you foresee, I mean, I, I know you, this is your life's work at this point. Do you foresee it potentially ever becoming legal in America? Well, you know, it actually, it already is legal in two churches. Okay. Right. So these are churches that are extensions of the Brazilian churches, and they went all the way up through the Supreme Court to get the legal right to use um, this plant concoction as a sacrament Mm -hmm. in their churches. So one is located in New Mexico and two connected ones are located in Oregon. So they have the right to use what is essentially the same concoction called ayahuasca as a sacrament in their church ceremonies. So in that sense, it's legal. And, um, and there will be other attempts to get that legal right, freedom of religion, to use it that way, which is uh, parallel to the Native Americans using peyote. Sure. Right? So there's that. Um, you know, there's a lot of research on the other psychedelics that where it's, the research is easier to control the dosage right. and the potency. It's, I don't know how they're ever going to do research with the plant mixture, um, in Barcelona, the, the research team has freeze-dried the ayahuasca, so it's a capsule, so they can control potency mm. and um, dosage. Right. But if you're drinking a, a, a liquid from a cup, you don't really know right. what's, what's in it. Right. Um, and that's, that's another reason to trust and choose very carefully where you're going. So I think MDMA or ecstasy, even though it's not technically a psychedelic, is... Um, is probably farthest along for therapeutic 
purposes to be to be legalized, which means doctors will be able to prescribe it. And MAPS, for instance, has said maybe in the next five years. And wow. I think that's the first one. Yeah, because I, I believe it's Columbia University. It's doing a lot of research with psilocybin. And, um, having... It's NYU. Oh, it's NYU. NYU is doing... Yes, okay. and they're using uh, psilocybin and, and LSD in three major universities, NYU, Johns Hopkins, and University okay. of Southern California. And they've been using it, I mean, how can we deny this therapeutic opportunity to people who are uh, terminally ill, where right. cancer is a terminal diagnosis, and it reduces anxiety and depression, right. it reduces pain, they use less pain meds, they can be more conscious during their whole process of decline and active dying. Yeah. So there are these incredible therapeutic opportunities that I hope will sway um, the powers that be to making these medicines available. Yes, it's not looking good right now with who's in power. Okay, it's not looking good. <laughs> well, let's not go there. <laughs> no, but let's hold the intention because, um, yes, when the benefits are there and they're undeniable, you know, going back to the work that Larry and, and Ram Dass or Richard Alpert started doing and, and Metzger and, you know, like, they were showing, like, look at look at what's happening here. This is exactly. pretty amazing. And the fact that that's continued has been wonderful. Um, it is still baffling. I mean, anyone that <laughs> is really interested in getting these substances, of course, they're not that difficult to get, at least in the areas I am at. Um, mm -hmm. But then again, you know, sometimes you don't know exactly what you're getting. And... Um, that's so in a similar sense, you need to really trust whom you're getting them from and the intention. Yes, this is an area where you have to be very careful yeah. about set and setting. Right. And it was, Ralph, it was Ralph Metzner who talked about integration, that in order to integrate, you have to be able to move from the inside out what you yeah. experience. That has to be expressed and shared in right. some way. Right. It was Ralph Metzner's quote. Yeah, yeah. Thank Very you. important <laughs> quote, too. But yes, yeah. set and setting, of course, absolutely. So what inspired you to research ayahuasca in the first place? Well, my own experience. I mean, yeah. right? If, yeah, if we're um, going to be honest, sure. <laughs> yeah. I had, uh, my daughter was, in, in, I think she was just finishing graduate school, so that job was pretty much done. Yeah. And, um, uh, I signed up for a retreat in Costa Rica yeah. in the middle of winter. I was living in New Jersey. I wanted to go to the beach. I mean, it's so prosaic. And I didn't recognize the code words uh, about nature and meditate. Meditate. I didn't realize sure. they were advertising an ayahuasca ceremony. So uh, a few days before I leave, somebody calls me from the retreat center and says, do you want to participate in the ceremony? And I say, what ceremony? I mean, I really had no clue. Right. However, I had a background from the late 60s <laughs> when I was living in California. Yeah. <laughs> at I was at Esalen Institute for a number of years. Yeah. I was a residential fellow there. And so I was deeply involved in this late 60s counterculture. Yeah. And so I had given up that lifestyle, of course, when I was a householder, raising a child and working. But now my life was completely different. And I felt that uh, this was serendipity at its best. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, their synchronicity is actually more accurate. And so, of course, I said, yes, I'll do the ceremony. 
And so um, I had this wonderful experience, the opportunity to relive the uh, final moments of my father dying that were very spiritual for me. And I had an out-of-body experience at the time that scared me out of my wits. And so in that very first ayahuasca ceremony, I was able to relive it and go further with that out-of-body. So out-of-body experience. So I sort of shot like a rocket ship up into the cosmos. And it was a complete mystical experience. It was wonderful. And it was the final goodbye to my father when he had died. And so I I have to admit, I've never had anything like that again. Um, And, you know, I only needed to do that once. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But it was a wonderful healing. And it kind of bonded me to this medicine and to the opportunity that it offers and so the and i really felt called to do original research it was published in a professional journal Mm -hmm. journal of psychoactive drugs where i was looking at really what happens when westerners use this medicine how is their life changed how are they different and the results were overwhelming in terms of what people people's personal reports, um, and they, they really fell into the same categories that therapists look for when we hope people are improving in psychotherapy, and, and that is that they felt better about themselves, not that their self-esteem was all of a sudden higher, but they were more compassionate. They had more self-compassion. They were not as critical, so they were easier with themselves. Yeah. Their interpersonal relationships were better. They suffered with less mood disorders, less depression, less anxiety, um, and they reduced bad behaviors, whether it was alcoholism or, or using whatever kinds of recreational drugs. Many people would just stop. I mean, the number of people who said, I woke up the next morning and said, alcohol is a poison, I'm never touching it again. And they didn't. And I followed people up for five to seven years, I would, I would call them, I would email them, they couldn't get rid of me. And I, you know, that was it for them. They stopped drinking. I was hoping for that kind of healing myself with sugar, but it never happened. So this is, you know, now how do I integrate? You know, I just haven't had that healing to integrate, I don't think. And, um, oh, now I know that's from your side. That's siren. <laughs> it's not out here. Hartford. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm very, I'm in very rural Maine. We don't have sirens. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's it. I'm actually surprised that's the first one since we've gotten on this call. So Oh, the first. Yeah. So, you know, I keep waiting for a spontaneous cure. Yeah. And people report, you know, the next morning, you know, I'm never going to eat processed foods again. All of a sudden, all I want is kale. I keep hoping for this experience for myself, but it hasn't quite happened. But I can feel that I'm sort of moving closer to that. That's great. You know, that that my diet is slowly improving. But that's that, you know, it it requires me to cooperate with it and really work with it. And I'm a slow learner, I have to admit. So there (laughs) there are spontaneous cures and there is slow working toward it. Yeah. But... People had, and then people also experienced that a better connection toward nature and a whole philosophical shift where a number of people said, I've always been an atheist or an agnostic, and now I know there's a spiritual web that I am a part of, that sense of interconnectedness. Right. 
And so these were the kinds of things that people across the board reported. Yeah. So what's your take, if you have any? Um, I know it's not, you know, ayahuasca talk, but I've met people who have sworn by ibogaine. Do you have any thoughts on that? I've never experienced it. Yeah, I don't. I haven't no seen research. research on it. Okay. It's also going to be a tough one to research. Yeah, I I met a couple so I, again at the Ram Dass retreat. They did it, um, explained the whole thing to me, and they now lead ceremonies. But they were very heavy opiate addicts. One one session of that, and they have been clean for I don't know ten years maybe. So well, um, don't I mean we've got an opiate epidemic. Yeah, we. We need to be more open to these these approaches yeah. and 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 have some good solid data too. Right, but it it takes a long time. It does, and unfortunately, they're up in Winnipeg, where I think it's a little more liberal their area. Um, uh huh. So it's it's tough in the U.S. But I was just curious if you had research. I don't have I don't have a position on it. Yeah, sure. So um, this is something I've I had heard. A friend of mine say this, and then I know you, you talk about it in the book, but grandmother ayahuasca. I love that term. Why Why grandma, <laughs> grandmother ayahuasca? You know, that, that's sort of the colloquial reference. I mean, I think there are some tribes who, who, who consider ayahuasca the, a grandfather ayahuasca, but mostly it's grandmother ayahuasca, and certainly that's the colloquial term used by Westerners. The concept is that this is a sentient, knowing, conscious plant teacher. Yes. And that it is possible to have a relationship with this plant teacher, Mm -hmm. a personal relationship. Mm -hmm. Does that mean the ayahuasca community thinks ayahuasca is a god? No, it's not exactly like that. But it is a healing presence in someone's life that is aware and knowing and where communication is possible. Yeah. So this is a pretty far out concept for most Super far. Yeah, <laughs> when I have this conversation, and you know much better than I do, but that this plant medicine actually, there's an intelligence yes, to it. Yes, an intention. Yes, yeah. Um, can you talk a little more about that? I mean, what, or what can you really say? I don't, what, I don't what know. Can I say? Well, you know, I can say explicitly that I heard a voice that to me was Grandmother Ayahuasca. It was as clear as I hear your voice. I'd never heard an external voice like this before. It was very clear, and it was was basically do the research. Mm -hmm. And that's what started this whole process for me, was the research study. And, um, uh, And along the way, at opportune moments, I would hear a voice. So, uh, and it's, you know, I don't know what to say about this. I mean, you you know, when I'm on one side of it, I think I'm, I'm imagining or I'm crazy on the other side, I think, well, that's actually how it worked. Of course, Mm -hmm. you know, what's so unusual. So it's both sides, but you know, I think I recently was reading a book, a psychologist writing about the psychology of religion and when they look at people in their relationship to Jesus, hmm. they report basically the same experiences that people report with Grandmother Ayahuasca. They receive guidance and support 
and healing and a sense of being loved, that it's very therapeutic. So from a psychological research point of view, this is called an attachment relationship. Mm. And, um, but, I, you know, this is also not comfortable for me. Mm. I've never had that relationship with God or Jesus. That's not my background. Right. But it is, I mean, for many, many people, they, they have that experience with a, a non-material spirit. So this is, you know, this gets pretty far out. And, and one of the things I did, because I had access to these um, famous, wonderful religion professors, is um, a, a friend of mine, Robert Foreman, has written a lot about mystical experience academically. Yeah. And I was able to ask him, you know, what's this voice I hear? Who is this spirit of Grandmother Ayahuasca? And he said, we don't know. And that really gave me permission to not know to and to get comfortable in that mystery. And then on the other side of the country, when I was in California and I was having breakfast with Houston Smith, who died this year, and yeah. but is a very famous, even more famous religion professor. Sure. And, you know, I asked him, so what do you think? Who is this grandmother ayahuasca? He gave me the exact same answer. We don't know. He speaks very slowly. Oh, yeah. So it's yeah. like, we don't. No, <laughs> you know, it's this wisdom voice sort of. Yes. And so I thought, okay, well, nobody knows. Yeah. <laughs> if these two academics don't know, and they, they are not just dry academics, each no. of them has been on their own spiritual path, yeah. um, then it's okay for me not to know either. Yeah, oh, it's beautifully said. <laughs> and so we're starting to run out of time, and I don't like to end with a cliche answer, but I mean... I would really love to know your inspiration behind writing this book and what you really hope people take away from it. Who's it for? You know, what's, I, it's great that New World Library published it. I've been a big fan <laughs> of theirs for a long oh, time. Yeah. Um, they've yeah. done tons of wonderful work. But, yeah, really, right. you know, why did you write it? Who's it for? And what do you hope people take away from it? You know, There you are. Sorry, okay. you froze. Uh, oh, did you lose me for a minute? I did. No problem. I can edit that out, though. No problem. Should I repeat? Yeah, because I, I didn't. I didn't hear anything. Yeah. yeah, I just. I just want to say personally, this was the hardest project I've ever done. Sure. And it was the culmination of everything. I my own spiritual path, all my clinical work, and the research background. It was everything coming together to do this. Yeah. Um. It's not as if I heard a voice that said, write a book. I heard a voice that said, do the research, not write a book. Right. So I was a little bit more on my own. I felt like I did have help when I desperately needed it. Yeah. I did have help. But it's been a lifetime of spiritual um, work for me, psychological and spiritual work. Yeah. And uh, here we have this amazing medicine and I wanted people to be able to make the most of their experiences. So it's a book that I wrote to be helpful before and after. And also, and I hadn't really been thinking of this when I was writing it, I give so many clinical um, examples that therapists can use it 
as kind of a template for how to work with spiritual issues. Mm. So this has been my focus in my own life, my professional life. And so this was uh, the last hurrah in in a certain way. (laughs) Well, that's wonderful. Um, Rachel, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I I feel much more informed. Um, I've learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will take a lot away from this. Your passion and commitment to your work um, and your integrity is very apparent. So I deeply honor and bow to you for that. Thank you. Thank you. And I just wanted to share again, the website is listening to, I'm sorry, let me pull it closer, listening to ayahuasca.com, which we will have listed on both pages. So please check that out. Check out anything else, Rachel, you have on your website. If there, Do you do events? Do you travel around or are you mostly Yes, based? actually in, in October, I'll be at two uh, conferences in California. Wonderful. One is the Bioneers and the other is uh, Science and Non-Duality. Oh, beautiful. So yeah, yeah, I encourage people visit your website, learn more about you, see where they can meet you in person. And uh, again, thank you for the work you're doing and taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rich. Bye, Chris. Bye. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.